Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 50. I'm Kip Clark, and with me in the studio today, Joe Walsh. Hi, Kip. So, Joe, today you want to talk about cultural appropriation, specifically the Maori group of New Zealand and how some of their practices have been appropriated by the All Blacks rugby team. And I'm curious to know, first of all, why this topic interested you and why you want to discuss it today. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me so much. So I went to uh, New Zealand for my broad experience from February to June of 2014. had an absolutely great time, but when I was there, I really became caught up in their national sport, rugby, and their their team is sort of world-renowned because they are so successful on the rugby pitch. But they're also world-renowned because of a certain ritual dance uh, war chant that they do before each game. It consists of yelling, shouting body movements all in unison and these war chants known as hakas date back to you know the 13th century when the Maori first came to New Zealand and probably to before then uh, that's just the first evidence we have of the Maori in New Zealand and I just became really fascinated with the idea that a national team would basically take this non-necessarily national chant if you will and use it as a national symbol for for the country these days only about 13 percent of the entire population of New Zealand is actually Maori which is fairly low in terms of the overall population. So it just became sort of an interesting topic to me in terms of why would this indigenous chant be used sort of as a national symbol. It also was very interesting to me because you have such a large uh, Western influence in New Zealand, yet their indigenous culture is still very vibrant. And how exactly those two groups sort of play with each other in one national identity. Well, first of all, thank you for explaining what your relationship to it was, how you became interested in it, and what you witnessed when you were there. I think that's really important in explaining both to me and the audience why we're talking about this and how we're going to approach it. I would then ask, because I'm not sure how I would define it specifically, how you would define cultural appropriation. Obviously, it's a very important term, and it's one we're going to be using a lot. How would you go about defining it? Absolutely, and I think that there are many different definitions of cultural appropriation, so what I will say may not match yours, may not match you know every other person's out there. In terms of cultural appropriation, I would say the taking of cultural ideals, norms, practices, without really understanding the historical context of those practices. So even talking about the use of the haka in these rugby matches, in government rituals, you know, many, many different settings, I guess that is also a question in itself. Is it cultural appropriation? Because you do have a long tradition of these practices being done in New Zealand um, and in these contexts, rugby, government rituals, you know, whatever you want, you want, to, you want to say. In addition, though, if anyone would know the history behind these rituals and these chants, it would be those who've been living in New Zealand, obviously the Maori since the 13th century, and Europeans since sort of the mid-1700s. So I guess then it sort of comes into question, what does knowing the history behind a cultural practice or an ideology mean? Which is a very fair point to make. In one of the articles we read, they say the haka was used to prepare for battle, both physically and mentally. But of course, even that alone, in one simple sentence, you can't encapsulate the entire historical importance of something, nor the cultural significance or the social significance. And I think to a degree, culture is very interesting because every individual has a different relationship to it. Things change over time. I believe culture is fluid. And so a lot of what we do adapt slightly. You said the indigenous population of the Maori is still alive and well in New Zealand, which unfortunately is not true of many indigenous cultures around the world. And I'd be very curious to know if certain hakas have developed or morphed in some way as time has gone on and maybe European influence has increased or relations between the two have increased 
if you happen to know about any of that. Yeah, absolutely. So just to sort of back up, I guess, a little bit, even past that, when Europeans first settled in New Zealand, they instituted the Treaty of Waitangi, which basically was uh, an agreement in between the Europeans and the Maori, dealing with a lot of land use, water management, different things having to do basically with the environment, and also a few practice thing kind of things as well in terms of Maori wanting to be able to, you know, keep the traditions alive that they have had for that point, 400 years. However, in, uh, I believe, 1985, they actually had to redo the Treaty of Waitangi because a lot of the things that were supposed to be done with it, a lot of the land keeping of for the Maori especially, um, were not being followed. Um, so it was sort of, in a way, a renewal between the New Zealand government and Maori tribes that they could make sure they were keeping all these resources and these cultural practices, if you will. So then that sort of brings us to, to the current day. Obviously, all of these traditions, you know, in a span of 700 years, everything changes. As you said, culture is fluid. I could not agree more. Culture today is not exactly what it was yesterday or will be tomorrow. And I mean, even just the fact that, you know, one of the two main hakas that the All Blacks rugby team, um, the New Zealand national rugby team does, was crafted especially for them. They're the only ones that do it. So you say it was crafted for them. Can I ask from whom they received these hakas? Did the Maori tribe contribute hakas to the All Blacks? That's actually a great question. I'm not 100% sure of the answer. My guess would be that uh, a Maori group or a Maori elder probably made the, the haka for, for the, the All Blacks. It is also possible that as you know, a number of the All Black team members throughout the last 100 years when this new haka has been used have been Maori, it's completely possible as well that one of the, the groups that they are associated with went into the formation of this haka. But as far as I can remember anyway, the only groups to actually use that specific haka are the All Blacks rugby team and their basketball team, the national basketball team. So, you know, even just the fact that they there is a specific haka only for athletic events isn't something that 100 years ago, 200 years ago, would not seem plausible whatsoever. I agree. I think that's very interesting. I know that one of the hakas, I believe it's pronounced kamate, was used as a peacemaking song or a rallying cry, and it was actually composed by a 19th century chief named Te Rauparaha, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, after he survived an enemy pursuit, that he was a chief and an enemy tribe was pursuing him. He hid in a well or some cave underground. His wife stood guard at the entrance of the cave, and when he escaped and his fellow members of the tribe greeted him after he survived this ordeal, he developed this dance or this haka. And I think it's very interesting that that specific instance and that feeling of joy and celebration has then been taken out of its context and used in an entirely different scenario, which I think is very interesting. But I would ask you, do you think certain cultural practices ever make sense outside of certain contexts? Are there things that can be universal? And do you think the Kamate Haka, for example, can be used in a variety of situations if it was originally composed in a very specific moment in time and for a very specific set of emotions? I know that's kind of a complex question. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. But I think it's a, a very important question, to say the very least. I think this first sort of came into my mind when I actually had to memorize and learn the entire Kamate Haka for a class that I was taking when I was abroad. The chant, the dance, the whole thing. I had to perform it many, many times. And while you do enjoy the full unity of the people, you know, doing the same steps and, and the exuberance of the haka. You do in some ways, at least I did, especially being a white European descended male, is this really something that I'm supposed to be partaking in? I loved New Zealand. I loved learning about it. As you said, you know, the, the history behind the Kamate haka, um, specifically, it's by far the most popular probably and most famous haka, probably largely, honestly, because of the All Blacks, because it is one of the two main ones that they perform. I got to see them perform it when when 
I went to a game. But you do sort of look at look at them and think, okay, you know, what does this mean to them? What does this mean to me when I'm doing it? What does this mean to the Maori who've been doing it for the last 700 and, and probably, as I said, more years? And I feel like you can really only ask that question to the individual groups. Obviously, to me, it's going to mean something very different than it's going to mean to the All Blacks doing it before, you know, the championship game for possibly this coming year in 2015, go All Blacks. But, you know, then it's also going to mean something completely different probably for the members of the team that are Maori and the members that are not, let alone then members of the Maori community. And I think the, the reason this became such a huge thing for me it was when I went to this rugby match and I saw the team perform it. You know, I was in this the stadium, large but but not large compared to something like the Chicago Soldier Stadium or most of most stadiums, I guess, in the U.S. But every single New Zealander in the audience rallied around that chant, and you know, probably at least 25 to 30, maybe even higher percent of the crowd was chanting along and doing the dance with the team. And I've never seen something so powerful, so unifying. Yet, you know, a large part of that population really historically has no connection to the haka. So the reinterpretation of these kind of things, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that in some ways it is the exchange of cultural knowledge and cultural ideas, but I think it is very important to know what a certain idea means to you might not be the same that it means to the original group. I agree. I think in this complex and multifaceted issue, one of the beautiful things to me is that one tradition or one cultural expression or display of emotion can mean so many different things which is really interesting. I think it's artistic in a way that you can create something that takes on all these different meanings. I think that becomes problematic when we lose touch with the original form of creation. Obviously, I will never be Maori, but I think it's important to try and understand the cultures of others because it's a sign of respect, I think. And it also makes us more interesting people when we understand how complex and deeply rooted certain traditions are I also think it's really interesting that certain members of the All Blacks are Maori because I think they have a certain cultural legitimacy, if you will. And I think that idea is also very interesting and maybe very problematic that certain people who are simply born of a certain group or maybe have a certain skin color when it comes to ethnic or racial ideas have legitimacy simply because they're born into that group. They don't even need to agree with the values of the group, but people will visually associate them with that culture or that group that they've become a part of. I think that that's very interesting because there are certainly examples, in my opinion, of people who do not belong to a certain group or culture that study it very closely and do their best to learn about it and try to integrate themselves into it. And I think they show a certain reverence for it. And I suspect there are members of that group, whatever hypothetical group you're thinking of, that don't really care and don't want to be a part of that group or it's not culturally significant to them. They don't derive any pleasure or pride from being a part of that group. And I think it gets complex to then say if you're born into something or you've been initiated into something that you understand it or you rightfully belong because I think belonging is a very complex issue. But to give you a more manageable question that we can discuss, do you think that having certain Maori members on the team gives other non-Maori members of the team any kind of legitimacy or safe passage to use hakas that do not traditionally belong to them? Have non-Maori members of the team discussed that with Maori members? Have any Maori members ever engaged in interviews or discussions on their feelings? I'd be fascinated to learn. Absolutely. I think one of the most interesting things, especially with the haka done by the All Blacks, is that for many, many years, only Maori descendant people on the All Blacks were even allowed to lead the haka. And I mean, 
leading the Hakka, as you can imagine, is a huge, huge honor. And it wasn't until very recently that a few non-Maori individuals have been able to lead the Hakka for the All Blacks. And, you know, it's one of those things I don't necessarily know what that means, especially in terms of the legitimacy for people, as you were saying, that do not necessarily have those roots traditionally or however you want to pose those. I saw a video recently, and this is sort of stepping, I guess, away from the Maori stuff for just a second, but it deals with cultural appropriation, I think, very well. It was a video that was apparently a school project done by the actress who played Rue in the first Hunger Games movie. And basically what it was talking about was cultural appropriation. She defined it, and she was talking specifically about black culture being used in the U.S. through the venue of hip-hop. And she basically was going through the history of hip-hop saying, people don't understand that this was born through, you know, the struggle of the black people. And then she was also even going through things like different hairstyles that are very common and popular for for black men and women, and the ways that a lot of, you know, especially whites, but also other races have sort of taken a lot of those and used them as their own. And I really thought that she made a lot of great points. Um, Not that I feel like I could go through them, but she really made a number of great points about you can't necessarily take these different ideologies and, and, you know, hairstyles and and hip-hop and all that kind of thing without fully understanding the historical roots behind them. So back to your question about, you know, the legitimation of, you know, these non-Maori members of the team, I think it's very hard to legitimate their use of these hakas um, fully. However, in the capacity that they have used them for the last, you know, 100 years or so. I think that personally is is okay. And I think as the nation of New Zealand, and as I've been able to tell, the Maori people specifically have accepted this use of their haka. However, I'm sure that there are also other members of the Maori community who would prefer that it was not used. I think it really, it's an okay use. What is not okay is to me any way, especially, you see a number of, you know, obviously in rugby you have two teams, and at the beginning of every game the All Blacks do their haka, and a lot of the time after they do their haka, if the other team has another traditional dancer chant, they will respond with that traditional dancer chant. It's really exciting in a way because it's sort of, it's a celebration of cultures, now let's play the game. You do sometimes have other teams who have famously sort of disrespected the haka or other traditional chants and things like that done before these games, and I think that definitely by that point, you know, there, there has to be a line drawn. This is not just some declaration of war by the All Blacks against the other team. Right, and I think at best the All Blacks are in some ways cultural ambassadors of the Hakka. Obviously there are Maori members who can claim that heritage, but for others it's not inherently their culture. They're sort of borrowing or adapting, in the case of our conversation, appropriating in some ways for sure. And with other teams disrespecting that, it gets very problematic because in the first place it isn't yours to disrespect but maybe it isn't the All Blacks to take on as though it is their own, and that gets very complex and muddled. Obviously, with Maori members, it becomes even more complex, but I think that's troubling to hear about, to say the least. Absolutely, and in general, I think relations between the Maori and the non-Maori in New Zealand have been pretty good, especially in comparison to a lot of other countries around the world. You could take the United States, for example, or Australia, that do not necessarily have as good relations with their indigenous populations and have definitely forced a lot more, I think, on them, especially, you know, in the last 100 years. But, you know, back even further than that, obviously, the history behind European settlers and those groups is troubling, to say the least. And 
you know, the fact that there are some groups, some people, some individuals, you know, I, I almost don't even think it matters if it's a larger group or an individual. I think you need to draw the line where it, it's no longer looking at a culture and looking at their ideologies and their practices and being proud and wanting to learn about those cultures and practices when it then crosses over to the point of ridicule, but even before that, or disrespect, I think might be a better term. That's really when I think it becomes an issue. And I mean, that happens, you know, everywhere around the world today, whether because of religious affiliation, ethnicity, race, whatever you want to say, there are prejudices around the world that cause, I think, really inappropriate behavior, especially against certain cultures that are not the same or similar to your own. And I think really the, the big thing there is just sort of a frame of understanding. There are, what, 7 billion people in the world these days? That's a lot of people. That essentially means there are potential for 7 billion different cultures out there, or at least 7 billion slightly different interpretations. Variations, Absolutely, variations of culture. And I think the first step in being able to fully appreciate all 7 billion of those variations of cultures is the understanding of, you know, where exactly did they come from? Why do they do the things that they do? And, you know, that goes for things that can be seen very positively. For example, the Hakka, at least obviously to me, it's seen very positively, and to the New Zealanders, it's seen very positively. Or, you know, to some cultures might be seen as more negative. Um, and, you know, you could list a number of examples that to, you know, the Western canon, you know, oh, we don't like X, Y, and Z for whatever reason. I agree, and I think one example of that is through the critic Paul Sheeran of the Sydney Morning Herald, who didn't find these Hakkas appropriate and says that they remind us of what the Maori did in the past. He has a very antagonistic view of the Maori and says that in wartime and in other practices, they've been very savage and barbaric, and he believes that a lot of the things that they have done in the past are very troubling in terms of human rights and other social or antisocial behavior in some way. And many of the people that wrote back in the articles that we read talk about his ignorance towards the European approach and that the Europeans have done plenty of troubling things. And if anything, these critics of Paul Sheeran say that Europeans should not be using the Haga, not because the Maori have some problematic past, but because the Europeans have an even more problematic past and that they don't deserve to use the Haga. So I think there's complications there. And frankly, I agree with the critics of this critic Paul Sheeran, if people at home are keeping track of what I'm saying, because he identifies the Hakka as a sign of the Maori, not of a specific behavior or belief of the Maori, but as a sign of them as a people in their entirety. And I think that's problematic because there are certain cultural symbols or icons or items that we use, let's say, as Americans, that I don't think encapsulate our entire culture. And I think it's very problematic to believe that. But I also think even if a culture were hypothetically flawed, and I don't agree with Paul Sheeran, and I think insinuating that about the Maori, every culture has something of value to it or something that says interesting things about them as a people or about their belief systems. And I think that the Hakka in particular, although I don't know much about Maori culture at all, the Hakka seems particularly interesting. And I think there's a reason that its use has taken off for the All Blacks and potentially for other groups in New Zealand. One idea that intrigues me, though, is the fact that cultural practices dances, chants, etc., that are not tangible can be appropriated very easily. All it takes is observation from one individual to then understand or try to understand how he or she could then replicate it in the future. And I think that's very complex because by comparison, stealing possessions or land becomes a lot more cumbersome. There's physical space, whereas stealing a practice is quite simple by comparison. And I think that makes it all the more dangerous because it's so easy to commit. What do you think about those things? 
Well, first, Kip, I think I'll address quickly the Paul Sheeran article that you that you mentioned. I think one of the things that we need to remember with the Maori, Europeans, any culture at any point of, of history, um, you know, there have been dark times and golden ages for every culture out there. And I think the other thing with that is that, you know, a golden age, something that was seen as a golden age 300 years ago, maybe seen as a dark time, you know, now. For example, I read an, an article fairly recently that was discussing basically the different ways that punishment has been put on people throughout the last thousand years, essentially. Um, and it was discussing largely how ages and ages and ages ago, it was all about punishing the body. And so we, we look at these these things where, you know, people are having their, their limbs ripped off and, you know, their skin flayed and just these horrible, horrible things. But now punishment has really turned towards punishing the soul, so imprisonment, things like that. They talk about a lot these days in terms of if you control the body, you control the soul. It's a much more internal struggle that is trying to correct the poisoned soul of the person who's done a wrong. And, you know, we look back 700 years and we think that horrible thing that they did, flaying the person because they were an adulterer or whatever it may have been. We look at that and we think that's the most terrible thing that you could do. Whereas, you know, if we were in their position looking at our own punishment system, they may be thinking, how could you do that to, to the soul of a person? You know, it really partially, I think, has to do just with the time that you live in, which obviously is very different from the time of birth to the time of death. You know, you know, an average person lives, what, 75 approximately years? A lot has changed in the last 75 years. You know, World War II, the Cold War, now we're in the early 2000s. Who knows what the next 75 years is going to bring? So I think it's also being very careful to frame culturally, not just in the context of the cultural group that you're looking at and the cultural practice, but at what point in that group's history did it happen? What was going on around them? I mean, in anthropology, anyway, context and archaeology as well, context is king. If you don't have context, you don't have anything, essentially. So I do think Sheeran's article is, is valid in a way because, you know, you do need to take in every piece of knowledge about these different things uh, as you can. But I also think the critics of his article have a point as well. I mean, yes, okay, you know, the Maori in some ways do have a troubled history. Well, Western Europeans, Europeans in general have a troubled history as well. I mean, look at New Zealand or Australia or Africa or the United States. I mean, we've done some not great things to say the least. So, I mean, just in terms of the critics and, and Sheeran generally, you know, I think it's a very tricky issue. I think looking at both sides is incredibly important. In terms of the intangibility of the haka specifically as a cultural item, that is very tricky, as you mentioned before as well. And we do hear all these stories, obviously, about loots, you know, of tombs in Egypt. And, you know, so at some points, I think that the idea that you could just rush in and, you know, grab a, you know, an Egyptian scale that shows something about King Tut, you know, at some points in history, it doesn't seem that unlikely because we do sort of tend to force our way in a lot of times, which is, I think, very unfortunate, destroying that context that I was talking about earlier. But as you were saying with the haka specifically, you could watch this. I went to a class for eight weeks and I learned how to do this haka. And I think that becomes very, very tricky. And I don't know how much has been written about the appropriation of dances and chants and things like that. Getting back to what I was talking about earlier about this girl's presentation when she was saying, you know, hip hop generally, and that's the same kind of thing. You hear a song, you think, oh, you know, I like this beat and I like what they're rapping about. I like what they're singing about, etc. It's so easy to just grab that and take it and run. I don't think it's been until even the last few decades that people have even started to realize that that kind of cultural appropriation is 
a type of cultural appropriation, which is really, really unfortunate, and I think it does produce a lot of the issues between different groups that we see today. Can you, though, really stop that kind of cultural appropriation from happening? I would love to say yes, I guess, but I don't really see how. As you say, you know, you, you have a five-year-old watching a performance. They go home and they get really interested. Or, you know, like for myself, I saw the All Blacks do it. I took this class by chance, which I initially thought was going to be a history class, not a dance chant class. So that was, even for me, a bit of a wake-up call because I didn't know exactly what we were going to be doing. But is it easy to just stop that kind of appropriation? I'm open to suggestions. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's possible? It might be possible, but because culture belongs to both everyone and at the same time anyone who is of a certain group, it becomes very muddled. And I know we've mentioned complication a lot in this episode, but culture itself is very complex. I think you can't necessarily interview every individual of a culture. So maybe some conclusions should be reached by the majority or by groups overall. But of course, that becomes very problematic when the majority of a culture speaks for the entirety. Absolutely. And I think this also sort of leads to a slight discussion on cultural tourism in a way as well, because, you know, as soon as a dominant group like European settlers have been for the last 500 years, wherever they've gone essentially, arrives, the indigenous cultures there are never exactly the same. In some ways, they're incorporating some parts of potentially, you know, Western ideals, goods, customs, something along those lines. But you do also see in the present day, especially in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, in New Zealand as well, this is, I think, a bit of an issue, a lot of cultural tourism, which is sort of the majority saying, look at this group that we have. They're so interesting and exotic. They're not like us. Where in reality, a lot of these members, a lot of the Maori in New Zealand, live by a Western canon in many, many ways. Not fully, absolutely, but they live in a Western nation state. And because of that, I think it's a little naive of us to say that the Maori culture now is the same that it was before all of this European involvement. Which then I think further brings into question then, what exactly is the haka today? Obviously, at its root, it is a Maori practice meant for these war situations. But now... Is it so much more than that? And I don't think necessarily that non-Maori using the haka, especially in, in terms of you know national identity in a way with the All Blacks, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think maybe it might be giving more dimensionality to the haka. You know, the Maori see it as this cultural chant that they, you know, they've had it for ages. It's evolved with them. It's grown with them. It came out of their roots. It came from this elder of theirs. And those who associate it with New Zealand as a Western state and rugby and all of that, they see it in that light. And I think if you stood one member who associates very much with the traditional view and one who associates it more with the more modern view, I don't even, you know, even those terms are slightly problematic, both of them are probably going to think that their own perceptions of it are equally valid. And in many ways, I think they are. Cultural appropriation is a very, very tricky thing because multidimensionality to these different practices, I feel like that's the culture growing, the cultures uniting, combining, mixing, still being separate in some ways, but also influencing one another. And I don't see that as a bad thing, necessarily. As I said before, I think it is when one dominant culture starts to misuse and misrepresent the minority culture in ways that the minority culture does not wish to be represented. As a white European descended individual who is talking about a practice that does not belong to me by root, although I do know the history, or at least some of the history behind this practice, I don't belong to that history. And in many ways, my view of the haka comes from the representation that has been thrown at me from a class in a university setting and the use by a national rugby team not necessarily by an 
indigenous group that has made this tradition. So cultural appropriation, I just think in general, it's a very tricky issue. I don't think it's ever going to completely go away, but I think it is very important to just look at exactly how these different practices are being used and also how the group that is having this practice, not necessarily taken from them, but borrowed from them, maybe is a better term, how they are responding to that borrowing. And I think it's very important to make sure that the minority group or the group that has this practice initially is the one that gets to, in some extent, keep control of that and manage the different meanings that come from it. All very good points. I would ask before we close out, are there any suggestions or pieces of advice or even things you'd like our audience to consider related to the Maori and cultural appropriation and things you want them to think about? Absolutely, especially with cultural appropriation generally. I think one of the big things, and we've talked about this sort of you know throughout the podcast, understanding is key. I think that it's hugely important that if you are learning about a new culture or learning about a new group or learning about a new practice, that you try your very best to understand the roots of that culture. I don't see a problem necessarily with having your own internalized idea of what this means to you as an individual. However, I think it is very important that even if you have that internalized idea of what it means to you as an individual, that you also understand that to the indigenous group or to the group that has spawned this cultural idea and identity first, that you understand where that came from, what the history behind it is. But I mean, this is in some ways sort of the struggle, I think, of anthropologists generally. You're going to have a lot of people who, you know, will hear things like this and say, no, like cultural appropriation is all bad. You can't have it. But then again, you know, as we've been saying earlier, culture is fluid. And every day someone is learning about a culture that they have no identification with whatsoever. And I think in some ways that's a great thing because they're learning something new about this this group. And hopefully, you know, that can lead to more exchange between two people, two groups, two entities, three entities, you know, people the world around. But I think it is very important to keep in mind who you are and what experiences you have had that have formed you when thinking about these other groups and the experiences that they have had and the traditions that they've had that have brought them to where they are today, culturally as well. We asked the question earlier, you know, can cultural appropriation be completely sort of washed out? And I think we sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, I guess it's, you know, you never know 100 years from now, 200, 300. But I think cultural appropriation is usually seen as as a very negative thing, and I don't think it necessarily has to be that. I think with the right understanding, with the right conscious mind being used when when thinking about it, it can be used sort of as not not even necessarily a positive thing, but sort of furthering understanding more generally of yourself as an individual, the seven billion other individuals that we live on this beautiful planet with, and all the cultures represented among them. I agree with everything you said. I think a lot of culture and anthropology is the complications of things and how people handle them. A lot of it can be very subjective. Obviously, some people feel so strongly as to argue that there are objective truths about peoples, about cultures, and of course, cultural practices. I would encourage people to be aware as well and to think about why they behave the way they do, what cultural traditions they hold to be very valuable. And if you don't want to think about cultural appropriation of others, I would urge you to consider what practices of yours you wouldn't like to be appropriated by people who might not understand what significance certain practices have, because I think empathy is really key in understanding issues of this sort. So, Joe, thank you very much for coming on. I was glad we got to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have thoughts or opinions, comments or criticisms, we would love to hear them, of course. You can reach us on Twitter at Stride and Saunter. Our Facebook is Stride and Saunter. 
You can email us via stridensaunter at gmail.com, and we encourage you to check out our website, stridensaunter.com. And as always, we thank you for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.